Good morning, Mother's Day 2020. Uh, go along with what Scott has said, Mike has said already in this worship service as our elders. We are so grateful for our mothers. We praise the Lord for our own mothers and for all the mothers who are in our congregation and any mothers who are joining us in worship by virtual means today. I ask you if you've lost your place in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to regain it because we're going to look at the three concluding verses of this wonderful chapter of the Word of God, having read already the first 15 together. We will be looking in some detail at verses 7 through 15 to go along with these concluding verses which were written through the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Earlier in his epistle to the Galatians, Paul wrote these words in the sixth chapter. He said, do not lose heart. The very probability is that those to whom he was writing were already losing heart. It's our experience as we follow Christ to tend to lose heart because we're in a struggle. The Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Add to that the fact that we have a struggle against ourselves. Also in the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter, the Bible says that the Spirit, capital S, is in conflict with the flesh. That would be our sinful tendencies, our personalities apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. There is this titanic struggle which occurs not only from without against the powers of darkness under the rulership of the prince of darkness, Satan, but also within our own selfish urges, what the Bible calls the flesh. We have many reasons to lose heart. The French have a phrase for to lose heart. Listen to it. Perdre courage. Perhaps you hear the word courage in it. To the French, the heart was synonymous with courage. The word courage is taken letter by letter into the English language. So, actually, when Paul is saying, do not lose heart, he was saying, do not lose courage. Many of us have been struck by different kinds of fears during this unusual, unprecedented time in the history of our nation, in the history of our personal lives. But what we need to understand is, we do not have to fear. The Apostle Paul says twice in the fourth chapter of Second Corinthians, we, speaking of himself and his cohorts, 
we do not lose heart. Now, that's not to say that they were not tempted to lose heart. In fact, in the opening remarks of 2 Corinthians, we've already seen this on another occasion, Paul writes, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the despairing of death. Death badgered Paul and those with him. How are we to overcome such fear? How are we not to lose heart? Maybe you said before, I just don't have the heart to do this anymore. I don't know what that might mean to you. Maybe you've thought those thoughts, maybe not in those exact words, over the last several weeks as we're in this COVID-19 situation. But maybe you sense that in your life. I just don't have the heart to go forward, the courage to go forward. In sports parlance, many times people will talk about prospects for their sport team. And they might say, he has or she has a lot of heart. What does that mean? It means that person has some intangibles in addition to how fast he can run the 40 or what his or her vertical is or any number of other measurements that are used on the physical plane to discover whether a person is actually going to make it at the next level of performance in sports. But when we hear that statement, he has a lot of heart or she has a lot of heart, it suggests a lot of courage, a lot of determination, a lot of internal fortitude a desire to do things that seem impossible for him or her to do. Maybe the name of Ander Holyfield means something to you. He was the one and still is, still living. I believe he's about 52 years of age now, 57 perhaps, somewhere in that range. And he is the only professional boxer in history to have been the undisputed champion of two weight classes. He fought in three different weight classes, lightweight, cruiserweight, and heavyweight. He became the undisputed champion of the last two, cruiserweights and heavyweights. He fought his way up to a challenge, and he won the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. He defended that against the likes of Larry Holmes, George Foreman, this man said this. He said, it's not the size of the man, but the size of the heart that matters. And he exemplified that in his life. Remember, he was a cruiserweight. Before that, a lightweight. He worked his way up to fight with the biggest of the heavyweight champions and previous champions and aspiring champions in the world. He got in the ring with Mike Tyson. Do you remember that infamous bout with Tyson? After he'd already taken the title away from Tyson, Tyson got a rematch. And Tyson, amazingly, bit part of his ear off. It took a lot of courage for Evander Holyfield to climb into the ring. He holds the distinction of being the only heavyweight in history to have won the title and held it 
four times. Four times. Two undisputed, but four times. This man had a lot of heart, didn't he? He fought 57 professional bouts. He won 44. Do the math. There were 13 times when he didn't win. Ten of those he lost by decision. Two were draws. And one was a no contest. This man of Vander Holyfield knew how not to lose heart. In 2017, in the NFL draft, those who played that year after the draft, all the first rounders played at least 40% of games, at least 40% of those who participated in the games of that season were four first rounders. Not a single person from the second through the seventh round played football that many times throughout the season. But there is a category that has nothing to do with the draft. Those undrafted free agents, 40% of them played like the first rounders did. These men obviously had a lot of heart. There was an intangible in them that kept them from losing heart. This passage of Scripture, which we're considering together, teaches us how we can avoid losing heart in this life. I hope you're ready. I hope you're listening carefully because the Lord wants to encourage you from His Word. Remember what the Bible says about itself? Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's very important. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We have to listen to God speak to us through His Word today if we are to have hope. What are the reasons that we do lose heart? Well, in this passage of Scripture, I believe it's suggested that we lose heart because we have a sense of inadequacy. We just can't do it. I believe that's why Paul uses this phrase in verse 7. Look at it again. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But, Lord, we say, we are just frail creatures of dust. How can I do this, Lord? How can I keep going in the midst of all this difficulty in my life, all these hardships? Please understand, the Lord knows your frailties. In fact, He actually uses that phraseology in the book of Psalm 103. When he talks about how he is a father who has compassion on his children, just like we as earthly parents have compassion on our children. But in that text, he also goes on to say by the Holy Spirit that he knows we are frail people. We're weak people. We can't stand up to all the pressures which come our way without some sort of assistance. And we'll get to that a bit later. The Bible tells us in this passage of Scripture, not only do we lose heart at times because of our sense of inadequacy, but also because of the adversity that comes into our lives. Let's pick up now verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way. The word afflicted has shown up already more than once in the book of 2 Corinthians 
It's peppered all throughout Scripture, by the way. I would challenge you as you read your Bible to be alert to the concept of affliction or afflicted. Affliction means pressure. And not just any old kind of pressure. Intense pressure. It's the word which was used to describe the pressing of grapes to get the juice from the grape. Or the pressing of olives to derive the olive oil from the fruit of the olive tree. Great pressure. We are afflicted in every way. Notice Paul includes himself in that. We are afflicted in every way. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, we are perplexed. What does the word perplex suggest? Literally it means we are cornered. We are cornered, boxed into a corner, bullied into a corner by our difficulties, our afflictions, our hardships. Paul and his companions were afflicted. Paul and his companions were perplexed. The idea of perplexed carries with it the possible idea of depressed as well. Depressed. Paul even talks about his own depression in the seventh chapter. And how he was encouraged along with his cohorts when Titus showed up. Titus brought joy to them and hope to them. So Paul knew what it meant to be afflicted. He knew what it meant also to be perplexed. Do you feel afflicted today? Do you have something going on in your life in the way of affliction? I'm going to talk a little bit more about the idea of affliction later in the message, but let me go ahead and make an observation. This is affliction that is common to all people, but to an even higher degree to those who know the Lord. Why would the Lord let us who are his children, undergo such affliction? Well, I'll hold the answer to that for a while. But let me remind you of the man next to Jesus who suffered the most, at least biblically speaking. Job was his name. Lost his entire family, ten children. And those children were old enough to have a gathering in their respective homes. So if that were the case, they probably were married. There were probably in-laws who were lost and undoubtedly some babies who were lost. This man Job lost his entire family with the exception of his wife. And she told him, curse God and die. Now, poor Mrs. Job. She had her own losses, didn't she? She was a mother, wasn't she? No more Mother's Day for her. We need not be too harsh with her. Job lost everything. On the physical level, there have been people since Job's time who have suffered such a tragedy, losing their entire family. He lost his fortune. He lost his future because he became what appeared to him and to his friends as terminally ill. He lost his fame. He was the most highly regarded person in the world And then people wouldn't even give him the time of day. He was so awful to look at, they would turn their heads. The children would make fun of him. He lost it all. This is the man whom God described to Satan as the most righteous man in the world. Was he afflicted? Was Satan behind it? 
Certainly he was. So these kinds of everyday things having to do with economics and health and relationships and all those things, all those things which are common to man, regardless of whether that person is a believer in Christ or not, all those things are under this heading. Let's go ahead and look back at the text to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 4. Persecuted. This means literally to be hounded, to be hunted down like a pack of dogs hunting down an animal of prey. Persecuted. We know the Bible says that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's an inevitability. Are you persecuted, perplexed, afflicted? And then the last phrase that is used here in verse 9, struck down. That speaks for itself, actually. Knocked down is the idea. Do you feel just beaten to a bloody pulp and you're just down on the ground emotionally? You're down, down, down. Adversity in our lives causes us to lose heart. But in God's sovereignty, as we're going to see, that God is the one who transforms us through our trouble. We would never become like Christ if it were not for the intrusion, we would call it, of trouble in our lives, trials coming into our lives. But it's not an intrusion from God's point of view. It is the instrument by which He uses to help us to become like Christ. Well, let's now turn away from the negative to look at the positive in this passage of Scripture. Having looked at the reasons why we lose heart, two big reasons, a sense of inadequacy and various forms of affliction or adversity. Let's look at the restoration process. What is necessary for us to be restored if and when we do lose heart? First of all, we must focus on the treasure that is in us. Go back to verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? I believe the New International Version says we have this treasure in clay pots. And in a sense, that's a better translation. The clay pots part is a little better translation than the New American Standard Bible. Think about a vessel or a pot. What is the purpose of a vessel or a pot? What's its purpose? It's designed to hold something. It is designed to be filled with something. We are earthen vessels. The word which is used in the language of the New Testament for earthen, and here again the NIV translates it precisely, clay pots. Is clay a valuable material? doesn't come close to silver or gold in its value. In and of ourselves, we don't have that much to recommend that's exceptional. But what we're going to discover today is what Paul says in the 
chapter before this, and if you have it handy, just take a look at verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Now, catch this. But our adequacy is from God. What is the treasure that is looking for a place to reside in you and in me? It's the person of Jesus Christ It's the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell us. He is the one who is to come and fill our vessel. We are His vessels. There is no reason for you to look down on yourself because you feel like you're probably the least of all the vessels in the household of God. But we must not make light of what God has created. When Paul was saved from his sin and set apart by the Lord on the road to Damascus, and Ananias was sent to pray over him so that his sight would be returned to him, and the Lord said to him that, I'm talking about Ananias now, he said, When you go, you're going to a man who is a choice vessel of the Lord. This man who had been a murderer, he hated and hounded Christians. He was on the giving in to persecution and all the things that he himself ended up experiencing. But you and I are vessels. Not necessarily exceptional in our humanity. But the Lord chose us to be vessels in whom He lives. We're to be clean vessels. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about different kinds of vessels in a house, alluding to the family of God. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble purposes. But we all are in that realm if we know the Lord. And we're used by Him as we yield ourselves to him. And so we have a responsibility to get right with the Lord. This is important. Part of the reason God allows afflictions and perplexities and persecutions and our being struck down is to get our attention, to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of everything going around us and put our eyes on the Lord. Whenever I'm suffering some kind of problem, whether it be very small, or to me, very large. I take it as an occasion to evaluate my own life and lift my heart to the Lord and ask, Lord, please show me and let me get rid of this. I want to confess it and repent of it. We're to focus on the treasure that's in us. What treasure is that? It's the person of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God living in us. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And we are not our own, for we've been bought with the price of the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that we're to focus on the treasure, the last part of seven, look at it again. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God is jealous for His glory. 
He created us for His glory. And if we're busying ourselves, drawing attention to ourselves, guess what? He can't get glory. And we're not doing what we were created to do. And it's always a mess if anything or anyone is doing something that that thing or person or animal or plant, whatever it is, was not created to do. So, God wants us to be sure that we recognize the Lord is the treasure and there will be no mistaking who the source of the victories which He wins through us is. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. <coughs> Excuse me. Focus on the treasure. Look at verse 8 and verse 9 again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're not crushed. Do Christians hurt when things happen to them? Well, of course we do. I don't know too many Christians who volunteer for affliction. But we're crushed by those afflictions. Are we depressed sometimes because of the trouble that perplexes us? Why, sure we are. But we don't stay there. We refocus on the treasure rather than on the circumstances that are perplexing us. And then this one especially appeals to me, persecuted but not forsaken. Persecution. Unbelievable what's going on in the world today in the realm of persecution. 260 million Christians by conservative estimate, by an organization that's Christian, Open Doors, 260 million believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are undergoing persecution of one sort or the other simply for identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? It's lonely when you're persecuted, when you're having trouble sometimes. I think of the Apostle Paul in his last letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. He's very generous. Then he says, But Jesus stood at my side and gave me strength, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord's with us all the time. Beautiful to think about that, isn't it? Struck down, but not destroyed. The Bible says that the righteous may fall seven times, but every time the righteous person gets back up, not in his or her own strength, but in the power of the Spirit, because she or he remembers that she or he is a vessel of this great treasure. The person of our Lord Jesus Christ indwells us. Thank you, Lord. It's so humbling to think of this. And these but-nots, let me call them out again, but not crushed, but not despairing, 
but not forsaken, but not destroyed. This is the evidence to a watching world that we are different, not because of any power that is inherent in us, rather because of the presence of God by His Spirit in us, Jesus in us is the hope of glory. It's the way Jesus acts through us. He lives His life through us. This power is transcendent power. It's extraordinary power. It's unexplainable. It's a power which works within people to transform us, and it calls for transparency on our part. Oh, Lord, build transparency in me. Build transparency in us as your people. May Coronado Baptist Church be done with putting on masks and be people who are transparent. People can see that we are just like they are were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Focus on the treasure. To focus on Christ is what it means. And to focus on Jesus is to trust in His life. Let's pick up now. At verse 10, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Stop right there just a moment. Are you aware that whenever Jesus talked about his impending death on the cross, he always talked about the resurrection too? He never talked about the cross alone. He always combined reference to His being raised again on the third day. This is the real gospel. This is the whole gospel. A cross was necessary. Resurrection as well. Do you know that the cross was meant to kill evil men? Jesus died on the cross. God crucified Jesus the Father killed Christ. How do we know? If we were to go to chapter 5, verse 21, if you want to glance over there, since we're in the vicinity, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where Paul writes, He made Him who knew no sin, that is, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became evil when He died on the cross. He took all of our evil upon Himself, all of our sin, and God killed Him and mortified sin too in the sense of it having power anymore over anyone who has been made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that he and his companions Always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. I've already talked about the life of Jesus being shown through our bodies. Before we really have that experience and our lives reflect Christ, we must first die. The old man must die. I am crucified with Christ, Paul writes. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's the treasure. Where is the treasure? It's in us. It's in earthen vessels. 
We are worthless apart from the presence of Christ in us, but we were designed from the beginning. God's plan was that Adam and all of his offspring would have that kind of treasure. But sin separates us. Self impedes us. This death to self is something that has to go on. You know how often Paul died? According to his own testimony in 1 Corinthians, how often did Paul die? He said, I die daily. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself. That's what it means to be a man or a woman who yields to the Lord. Say no to ourselves in order that we may say yes to our Christ, our Lord. Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, said this, For every one look you take of yourself, take ten of Jesus Christ. That's not even a safe ratio, really. When we look at ourselves, and we have such a tendency to do that, when we're used by the Lord, when we, being earthen vessels, yield to Him, and He does something through us that is indescribable in some people's minds, or things that are unusual and atypical of other human beings. It is something that we want to kind of get puffed up about. But please always remember that we must die to self-expression. Putting Mike Woods first. Being upset as Mike Woods if somebody gets more attention or has more money or has more education or whatever kind of description you might apply to me or to yourself. We must die to ourselves. William Law, who wrote a book, A Call, Serious Call to a Holy and Devout Life, wrote this about self. Self is the root, tree, and branches of every evil act a fallen nature. Your flesh, my flesh, our selfishness is that which must be denied, put to death as it were, in order for us to be people, coming back to our passage of Scripture here in verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Do you want the life of Christ to be manifested in your life? Well, we must die to ourselves. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. We have a part to play. We must die. But be sure the Lord's going to see that we are delivered over to death. Maybe not physical death, but certainly death to ourselves. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you see, we are vessels designed... To be the conduits, the conveyors of the life of Jesus. That wonderful, wonderful life. We will inevitably focus on others. If we go forward in this passage of Scripture, look at verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, and that has to do with trusting in the Lord, of course, according to what is written. I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, 
so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. We're to focus on Jesus primarily. But inevitably, when we focus on Jesus, we focus on that which He prizes most. Do you know what Jesus' interests are? Writings of the Philippians. Paul commends Timothy to them. He said, Timothy is going to come to see you. There's no one else I have like him. He takes a personal interest in you. And he goes on to say, everybody else looks after his or her own interests. What are the interests of Jesus? What are Christ's interests? People. His people in particular. He is very interested. And so we're going to be focused on other people too. We're not going to compare ourselves to ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 says, If we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. We're fools, really, to compare ourselves with one another. Jesus is our standard of measurement. And we all who know Christ have Him dwelling in us. Here's what we must do, lastly. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the Lord. Focus on others. And then embrace the value of our affliction. Why does Paul call our affliction light in this passage of Scripture? Let's read this, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Betty Davis, I read this recently, said that old age is not for cowards. Well, we who are aging understand that. The outer man is decaying. And do you see how hard people around you are trying to retain their youth? There's nothing wrong with exercising, taking care of your body. But it's amazing, the industry that's associated with that. We worship youth. There's a good reason for that, because people have no hope beyond this life. But we who know Jesus, though the outer person is wasting away, what does the Bible say? The inner man is being renewed day by day. What a beautiful thing to know that we are renewed daily if we walk with the Lord, spend time alone with the Lord. And as our outer person is wasting away, we are growing in wisdom. We are growing more like Jesus. And we ascend the hill of the Lord, as it were. And we are moving, as the old hymn says, marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, an image of heaven. So we who know Christ, even though... The body is decaying, wasting away. The good news is we have hope, don't we? Unbelievable that we have increasing hope if we come before the Lord daily, listening to Him speak to us through His Word daily, fellowshipping with Him, walking with Him. And then the momentary light of affliction, The momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Think about this with me a moment. 
the word it, words, momentary light affliction, that phrase, eternal weight of glory. How can Paul say these afflictions are light? Well, let me answer that question. Because it prepares us, the affliction in our lives prepares us to detach from the world and move forward spiritually and then prepares us for heaven. Compared to other people, our afflictions are nothing in most cases. I mentioned the 260 million believers in the world who are undergoing persecution. The number one country on the list of open doors where persecution is greatest is North Korea. I cannot help but think about the apparent illness of the leader and how he has pointed his big guns at both Christians, 300,000 out of 25 million or so North Koreans. In that nation, if someone overhears you say that you're a Christian, you are reported to the police, you are sometimes arrested and killed on the spot of your arrest, or at least sent to a prison camp. And this goes on and on. Countries all over the world are like that. Do we compare in our affliction to that? Not at all. I'm not trying to minimize your trouble. Your trouble is big because it belongs to you. And God knows what you need and what I need in the form of trouble. He knows what will get our attention and then what will help us to grow spiritually. So we can leave that in the hands of the Lord. But what about Jesus? The Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I already talked about that a little bit. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him who suffered such hostility by sinners upon himself, so that you consider Jesus who shed His blood, who became sin on our behalf, who was crushed for our iniquities. Consider Christ and consider Him so that we will not grow weary and catch this. We will not lose heart. Not lose heart. So, compare to others. Our afflictions are nothing. They are indeed light compared to what we deserve. Psalm 103.10, the psalmist writes, God has not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. Hey, we would have suffered the death Jesus died were it not for the grace of God in our lives. Can you believe that? Would you like to undergo that in your life? I don't think so. I sure wouldn't. And there's so many privileges which come. We're never alone. Never. The Lord is our helper. We saw this last week from the book of Hebrews. That the Lord's our helper. Whom shall we afraid? What can man do to us? The Lord is with us. We are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In whom? Christ Jesus. And where is He? Well, He's in heaven in His bodily presence, but He's in us, in His Spirit. 
We are earthen vessels and we are the repositories of Christ, this wonderful treasure. Also, our affliction proves the power of Christ's sustaining grace. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a moment. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. The Bible says, Concerning this, I begged the Lord three times that the thorn in my flesh might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Look, we've got to acknowledge our weakness Our inability, our inadequacy is the currency of being used as vessels as we were designed to be used. Give it up. Your own selfishness, give it up. Your own desire to be noticed by men, give it up. In favor of the Lord. Be a man or a woman like the Apostle Paul who goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 12, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, ah, sweet words, then I'm strong. When we're weak, only when we are weak are we strong. So, another thing that we must consider is so we can see what it leads to in our lives. That is, these afflictions. And it leads to growth, doesn't it? Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your words. It's good that I was afflicted. Amazing. What's wrong with that guy? It's good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Because it's in your word. We know this. It's written throughout Scripture. It's in the Word of God that we find freedom. We find joy. We find the power to stay and not to leave. The power to not to lose heart. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, talks about when a man or a woman who knows Jesus has suffered in the body, that person is through with sin. Suffering serves that purpose in our lives. We can embrace affliction by looking at the eternal rather than the temporal. As we go back to our passage, the last verse that we're looking at today, verse 18 says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Wow, it's been a journey today for me. I'm glad I had this assignment from the Lord. He's worked me over, taught me well, I think. But the good news is, we are to look to heaven. John says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, If the love of the world lives in anybody, the love of God cannot be in that person. And what is the love of the world? The lust of the eyes? That has to do with wanting things. The lust of the flesh, wanting pleasure. The lust of the world, wanting power. We, the lust of the eyes, I mean, the last thing should have been the boastful pride of life, wanting power. And we can look beyond this world. This is why the, the body wastes away, to prepare us. 
This is not some placebo that God puts in the Bible to help us to cope with advancing years. It's the truth. Look at the universe, the law of entropy. Everything is winding down. Not just we as people. Everything is winding down. When President Franklin D. Roosevelt won the first election of four, when he won the presidency of the United States, it was in 1932, he and his family owned a flat in a nice apartment building in Manhattan. Just he and his son went together after all the fanfare was over. His son James was his personal secretary. And as they came into the room, President Roosevelt had been a victim of polio. He couldn't walk. His son had to help him into bed. He put him in the bed and... James did what he always did. He kissed his father on the cheek. And then his father said to him, James, there's only been one thing I've been afraid of all my life. He said, what, father? Fire, he said. But tonight I find myself more afraid of being president of the United States than of fire. And then he went on to say, James, you're going to leave in a little while. And I'm going to pray to the Lord, telling him I don't have what it takes. And would he please give me the power to fulfill this most important office in the world. And then I'm going to ask you, James, when you go to your place to lay your head tonight, that you would do the same for me. Look. Trouble is a part of everybody's life. It's what we do with them which determines whether we lose heart or not. What do we do with them? We give them back to the Lord. And the Bible says in Psalm 55, 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will not let the righteous be forsaken. And the phrase, what he has given, a burden is really the phrase in the original language, what he has given you. He's given you your affliction. It's from him. Do with it what he wants you to do with it. Cast it back on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time you've given us today. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit now as we yield ourselves to you. If you're watching... Just say, Lord, take control of my life. I am weak. I am afraid. I am incapable in and of myself. But I want to believe you, Lord, when you say that your power is made perfect in my weakness. I want to yield myself as your vessel to indwell and to use to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.